Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today for our series on women in the judiciary is Justice Leona Teron, who is a judge of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. Welcome to the show, Justice Teron. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Amalaya. I am so honored to be here and to be talking to you in conversation. I, I have to say you've been on our, our wish list for, for a few years now. Um, so yes. I'm so glad that we finally have the, the time to have this conversation. I'm also glad that we're finally doing this. The Constitutional Court is described as the highest court in South Africa. It was born out of the country's first democratic constitution in 1994, and 11 judges, one of which is you, stand guard over the constitution to protect everyone's human rights, 60 million people in in the country, massive responsibility. To start with, South Africa has several kinds of court, which include the Constitutional Court, Supreme Court of Appeal, Provincial High Courts, and Magistrates Courts. In layman's terms, please tell us about the role of the Constitutional Court. Um, when the Constitutional Court was first established, immediately after 1994, it was then the ultimate court that decides any question related to the interpretation, protection, and enforcement of the Constitution. So it was the highest court on all constitutional matters. Now, the express task of the Constitution is to build a new and better society and a future for South Africa. So it stands as a bridge between our apartheid past and our democratic present and leading us into the future. In 2012, the jurisdiction of the court was increased. So we didn't only have constitutional jurisdiction. In 2012, with the 17th Amendment that was passed by the government, the court was given general jurisdiction as well. And the court can hear matters that raise an arguable point of law of general public importance. In simple terms, it just means the court can hear matters that affect the country. So it need not be a purely constitutional matter. So this is why since 2012, the Constitutional Court has in effect, become the apex court of South Africa and the highest court of the land. So your mandate has increased exponentially. It definitely has. And with that, the workload of the court has also increased. And we are constantly looking at ways to of making the court more efficient. And it's a challenge because when that court was established, the constitution dictated that there must be 11 judges and all 11 judges sit in every matter. And it was much easier, I think, to do at that stage in the beginning when they were only, when the court was only dealing with constitutional matters. Now, together with the general jurisdiction, it's a challenge for the court. And we're constantly trying to find ways to deal with that challenge that's before us. Everything is about an evolution and what may have been right at one point in time has to shift and adapt to the next stage. Yes, yes. You were also founding member of the South African chapter of the International Association of Women's Judges. 
Why yes. did you and your colleagues feel the need to establish a South African yeah. chapter? Um, let me start off answering that question with a quote from a person that I admired greatly, the late, the late and great Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she said, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. And I think the chapter adheres to those values. And it was founded in 1991 as a non-profit, non-governmental organization that brings together judges from all levels in the judiciary worldwide. The founders of the International Association began with the vision of increasing the number of women judges and promoting equal justice for women and girls throughout the world. So the transformation that we need and we have seen in our judiciary, it's not unique to South Africa. Worldwide, there was a problem where women were underrepresented on the bench. Now, in 1994, and that was not long ago, and this might surprise you and might surprise the listeners, there were only two women judges in South Africa. The one was Judge Leonora van den Heffer and Judge Jeanette Traverso. That can never be justified in any society. Two women judges in 1994. And when we established the chapter and we were inaugurating it. Then President Thabo Mbeki spoke at our inaugural session and he noted that the transition to a genuine democracy in South Africa requires that we put an end to the underrepresentation of women in the judiciary. So one of the vital objectives of the local chapter was the attainment of gender equality in the judiciary as a feature of democracy. Just as we needed transformation in terms of race, so we need transformation in terms of gender. And one may ask, why should the judiciary be transformed? After 1994, our constitutional order was replaced by a regime which whose oppressive laws had caused untold harm to many and the majority of South African people. Many black South Africans were subjected to forced removals, detention without trial. The laws were devised to keep black people oppressed and in a position of subservience. The courts were drawn into the process, as we know, of enforcing apartheid, and they had to interpret and apply laws that supported discrimination and oppression. So in the eyes of people who were subjected to these unjust laws, the courts were a part of that system of oppression. And our former Deputy Chief Justice said, and these words are so true, he said, justice had a white, unwelcoming face with black victims at the receiving end of unjust laws. Now, we can also say and apply that to gender. Justice must not be seen to be meted out only by males because people in appear, appearing in our courts are males and females. So we need a judiciary that reflects the diversity of the people that it serves and this supports the rule of law. And as you know, we don't achieve 
anything. We don't achieve change. We don't achieve goals if we don't work towards it. And the establishment of the chapter was to hasten the process of transformation of the judiciary. Um, the chapter provides a platform for training of women judges. It provides a platform for women judges to share experiences, to exchange knowledge, and to collaborate with each other and to support each other. It sounds like a vital tool in being able to ensure we've got representation of, of female judges. You yourself have a track record of advancing women's rights. For example, in the case of Gumede versus the President of the Republic of South Africa, you wrote a seminal judgment which ruled that women in customary marriages were, in effect, married in community of property and so accrued similar rights and benefits. Please, can you describe what this landmark judgment means for women Yes, perhaps before I answer the question directly, um, if I could just say the significance of being a woman judging this matter. And while I'm not saying it would be lost on male people, but I know as a woman of women in similar situations, in the weak position she might find herself in upon divorce. And that's why often you need, while we apply the law, impartially it comes with perspective and i think the woman's perspective is so important and throughout history women have found ourselves themselves to be under social and legal control of their husbands in some instances they were even regarded as minors not able to execute a contract without the assistance of their husband and this once again is not peculiar to South Africa. Worldwide, you would find this, and women given a status of lesser than that of men and of their husbands, and either initially being subjected to the power of their, of their fathers and later to the power of their husbands. Now, Mrs. Kumede got married in 1968. They were married for 40 years by the time they came to court. During the marriage, Mrs. Kumede was unemployed, primarily because her husband did not allow her to work. He said, your role is at home. Your role is to take care of the family and be the primary caregiver. But we must understand during that time, that is what was accepted. That is what was designated as the role of women and the role of men. So it, it was not seen to be really an oppressive request from her husband. It was what society expected. And Mrs. Kumede had no means to contribute to the purchase of their family home while her husband did. But this is because he had been working all the time. But she did engage in little activities, working from home or in the fields that would, would give her some income. She contributed by buying furniture for the home. She also contributed by buying appliances. And in addition to that, she was the primary caregiver of their children. In 2003, Mrs. Gumede instituted proceedings to end the marriage. Both she and her husband had agreed that their marriage could not be saved. The outstanding question was property and how the property that they had acquired in 40 years, which is a long time, how that was going to be divided between them. 
what the customary law act said, and this was a code that was applicable in KwaZulu-Natal only. It said that Mr. Gumede becomes the owner of all property acquired during the marriage. And on divorce, he gets the property and she gets nothing. Now, what my judgment held when this was in the high court, that the legislation was unconstitutional because as its effect was that a wife who entered into a customary marriage before the commencement of the Recognition of Customary Marriages Act, if I could just explain for a minute, the government did realize this inequality, this injustice, and it introduced a Recognition of Customary Marriages Act, which gave recognition, it gave rights to customary marriages, but the legislation provided that it would only apply from a certain date. And it was well before Mr. and Mrs. Gomede got married. So she was excluded from the protection of that act. Now, I held that that legislation was discriminatory because it discriminated against African woman and only against African women to the extent that the result, it resulted in unequal proprietary consequences. My judgment went to the constitutional court because any law that is declared unconstitutional by the high court or the Supreme Court of Appeal, that it has to be confirmed by the constitutional court. So the constitutional court agreed with me that that legislation was unconstitutional. The significance of the judgment in Gumede is that it contributed to the advancement of women's property rights in South Africa. And it touched on the importance of the intersecting discriminatory factors of race and gender faced by many. Depriving women of property in particular is a unique form of oppression and closely linked to depriving women of independence. So the Gumeda decision, I agree with you, marks an important step in the furtherance of equality for women. It must have been a phenomenal experience. And this wasn't only solving for one individual. This is about doing something for women collectively in in the country. It definitely was. And I think as a judge, when you're dealing with a case, you don't think of the consequences nationwide or what it can have. You, You think of the parties before you and you try to do justice to the parties before you. It's only afterwards that I also realized the significance that this had for all women married in terms of customary law before then. And just just to add something, um, this case has been used by an international judges organization. They use it as a seminal case for training judges. And they're based in Canada, and they've often asked me to assist in the training because they're saying to judges, if you are presented with unjust laws, you need to find a way to create justice. Don't just accept the law and say, this is the law, and I'm going to apply the law. If the, the, the law results in an unjust consequence, then you, you should change the law. And this is one of the cases they use to make that point. 
And I think that that's one of the most refreshing things that life can change, laws can progress. And and that's why as well, our constitution is referred to as a living document. The constitution is relevant today. It will be relevant in a hundred years time, but how we apply it or how it implemented may be different according to the situation that is in place then. But the fundamentals that the constitution strives to maintain an equal and just society, that will always be there. You've just shared with us a really important gain in terms of progressing women's equality and raising the fact, I think, that unpaid care work should actually be paid. But In this view of of gains, we're in Women's Month, and I think it's important to to reflect on the gains as well as the the challenges that still need to be overcome. This year's theme is Women's Socioeconomic Rights and Empowerment, Building Back Better for Women's Improved Resilience. What's your take on the theme? I think it's a very, very important theme. Until women are empowered until women can achieve the socioeconomic rights that are guaranteed in the constitution. Those rights don't mean anything to them. Now, in this month, we celebrate Women's Day. And that was the day when 20,000 women marched to the union buildings to protest against discriminatory past laws. 9 August and the month of August honors the significant role women have played. But it's not only about remembrance. It's for us to recognize, as you say, the progress we have made, to reaffirm our commitment and to mobilize for the future in light of the challenges that we still face. Women around the world are plagued by gender-based violence. Gender-based violence is something that sits very, very heavy on my heart. And each year, I know we have the 16 days of activism. And I, and I say to myself at the start of the 16 days of activism, is it going to make a difference in the year that's coming? I don't know if we are winning that battle and we need to. It's a scourge. It's a pandemic. Women's Day and Women's Month is also a reminder for the ongoing struggle for a more equitable and inclusive society for women. And the theme of this year's Women's Day and Women's Month perfectly encapsulates this ongoing struggle and the unique issues that women face today. Access to resources and opportunities is essential in promoting gender equality. It's essential in empowering women and it's essential in addressing the systematic disadvantages that women continue to face. It is well known that under apartheid, black communities and in particular women were stripped of land rights and housing rights. We've had many cases come to court where women could not inherit. A female child could not inherit the house that the parents had left, but her brother or if a brother is not there, an uncle would inherit So the high incidence of poor housing, of overcrowding, and a large number of South Africans that lack access to water, modern sanitation, healthcare, electricity, it continues to hold us back. We have female-headed houses, households, and they form 42% of households in South Africa. And they are more likely 
to experience a higher rate of poverty than male-headed households. That statistic in alone should tell us a lot. It should tell us that we need to focus on empowering our women more. Race, gender, and class serve as intersecting factors that put women in a particularly vulnerable situation. I speak from my own experience. I know I've risen above my circumstances, but my first roadblock was that I was black. My second roadblock was that I was a woman. So it was obstacles that I had to overcome. And the obstacles that I've overcome are still in place for so many women. But in view of these aspects of obstacles, which are 100, 100% real, these are your identity. You can't change your race. You can't change your gender. No, we can't. We can't. And let me add, I wouldn't want to. Speaking for me personally, I'm a woman, I'm black, but I've lived and I am living a wonderful life. I don't, I don't want to be changed into a man. I accept that I'm a woman and I can do my best as a woman, but I need government support. I need society support. And I am one of many women who have risen above my circumstances, but there are so many who have not. I'm very active in the Wentworth community where I come from. Often I go there and I participate in workshops, but it also saddens me when, I'm, when I am there because I manage to escape that cycle of violence, of drug abuse, of woman abuse, of teenage pregnancy. But there are still so many who are trapped in that cycle. How did you escape? What were those elements? I have to say that it started with my parents. Um, I recently watched the movie King Richard, where King Richard had mapped out a program for his two daughters even before they were born. He mapped out the program that they would be champions, Wimbledon champions. Um, I have a similar story at a different level, of course, not, not, not Wimbledon champion. When I was five years old, my father decided that I would go to university. At that stage, we were living in Wentworth. The only university open to brown people like me was the University of the Western Cape. The predominant language of the Western Cape at the time was Afrikaans. And my father said, if I wanted to go to university that was predominantly Afrikaans in Afrikaans region, I had to learn to speak Afrikaans. So he enrolled me in the only Afrikaans medium school in Durban for brown people when I was five years old. So my career, my future started being mapped out when I was five years old. And I like to use the story, particularly when I'm speaking to people in Wentworth. Recently, there was a father's workshop and I said to the fathers, what is your vision for your children? Write out your vision for your children. My father had a vision. I would go to university and start implementing that vision. As soon as your children are born, implement the vision. Venus and Serena's father had the vision before they were born. 
And I say to people, I was an ordinary five-year-old child in Wentworth. Nothing special about me. But my father said, this is the vision he has for me. And this is the path we're going to follow to reach that vision. From the age of five, I knew that I'm going to university. I had no idea what a university was. I had no idea what anyone did at a university, but I knew I'm going to a university. And I think that was the start of the foundation that was built for me. And I had parents who worked hard, parents who protected me from the social ills of my environment. I had parents who kept me busy. They took me to church, one of the institutions in a community like winter. Church is free. It takes your time. It occupies you. And that's what church did for me. Church instilled a love of music in me. From a young age, I learned to play the piano. Church instilled with me certain disciplines and values. And all of that did not require money. And I think parents of today can do the same. There are so many organizations that work with children, that work with women, and they supported their NGOs. And if we can get involved, and there are still so many churches as well. And, and I think that that was the foundation for my future success. That's an incredible story. And I love the parallels demonstrating that this is something that the parents can do for their kids. So starting in the mindset, university at age five, you went on to get your BA, LLB degrees from University of KZN yes. and an LLM from Georgetown University in the United yes. States, where you studied as a Fulbright scholar. You were appointed to the bench in 1999, becoming the first black woman judge at the KZN KwaZulu-Natal High Court. At age 32, you were also the youngest judge to have been appointed in South Africa at the time. Massive achievements and several firsts. You've shared the dynamics of how it began. What impact do you think becoming a judge has had on your family and your Wentworth community? Um. Let me just go a step back. I was the first person in my mother's family and in my father's family to pass matric. And at that stage, when you pass matric, your name would be in the newspaper. I still become emotional. When my name was in the newspaper, you would swear we had won the jackpot. Wow. Yes, and it was my family, it was the extended community, it was almost the whole of Wentworth that was around us there, that was celebrating because um, it was an achievement for our community. And I think it was a recognition that other children can achieve that as well. And that's the important thing that I like to say. And I know I'm concentrating on Wednesday, but it's because I, I, I often get invited to come back there and I'm happy to do so. And I say, I was here. I walked these dusty streets. My mother and my grandmother would send us to our neighbors to go borrow our onion or to borrow tomato. I don't think we ever, we ever gave it back. So there was nothing exceptional about me, but I was able to do so. And I say to them, you can do it 
too, with the right support, with the right attitude. I think my appointment as a judge provided the youth, it provided the aged, it provided mothers and fathers with hope. It provided them with inspiration. It provided them with, with, with an opportunity to say, if Leona can do it, we can try to let our children do it as well. And you would not believe the success stories like 10 or 20 years later when somebody would meet me and say, you know, that day you spoke the, you touched my heart. That day I changed my life and I went to study. Even though I was 30 years old, I decided to pursue my goals. And that's why I continue to do what I do outside of my work as a judge. If I can impact one person in one speech or one lecture or one workshop that I attend. I feel so good about that. And I believe I have a duty and people in my position also have a duty to do that because that is how we change our society one by one by one. So becoming a judge has had, I think, a huge impact on my family, on the community in a positive way. But it's also been taxing. It's been taxing for me. It's been taxing for my family because of the commitment. And when I make a commitment, I, I give 100%. I give 110%. And I believe in excellence. And I think there's two instances in particular that stand out for me of when I felt guilty about the, the demands that the jobs made, often at the expense of my family. My daughter was 18 months old. And she suddenly fell ill and I was in court. My husband took her to the doctor and in the adjournment, I phoned my husband to find what was, you know, what did the doctor say? And I discovered she was on the operating table undergoing an emergency surgical procedure. I felt my heart sink to my shoes and I'm saying, oh, is, is it worth it? Is it worth what I do as a judge now for my daughter to be alone going through or with, or with her dad and without me? And you realize that that is life. There are going to be tough times. There are going to be times when you feel guilty. There are going to be times that your children might even say, you know, but you weren't here for this. You weren't here for my grade three graduation, or you weren't here at a special sports award. But I've always driven to do my best. And I go to bed easy at night because I've always tried to do my best. And I may have come short. I may not have been perfect in every instance, but I know I've done my best. You lead a very full life. In thinking about your different caps, you're a professional, you're a judge, you're a daughter, you're a sister, you're a wife, you're a mother, you're an avid hiker, You've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, a musician playing the organ, piano, violin. How do you do it all? Planning. It's so important to plan what you want to do. I plan everything in my life, from the basics to shopping, to cooking, to baking, if I know I'm going to bake on the weekend, I plan when I'm going to do it, although load shedding makes it a bit more difficult now. And I plan what I need in order to be able to do it. For me, planning has worked. That has been the cornerstone of my life. Um, personal characteristics, I think it's the value of hard work. 
and of smart work as well. You can you can take one hour to do a task, but you can always find a way. Is there not a way for me to do this just as good in half an hour? And I, and I, I think I've mastered that. That's a great skill to have. With us being in Women's Month, could you use this opportunity to talk about some of the women who have been key role models and, or influences? Oh, I have to start with my mother. She was the first woman that I met in my life. She's a woman of courage. She's a woman of strength. She's a woman of inspiration. And often you don't see this as a child. You see it when you become a mother yourself. And you see this when you start adopting certain characteristics and doing certain things that your mother used to do. But when you're young, none of us, I don't think any of us want to be like our mother. My youngest daughter looks a lot like me in a long time. And people would always tell her that. And for a while, you could see she'd get annoyed when people tell her that she looks like her mother. So my mother was the first woman to inspire me. She epitomizes hard work. I have seen my mother making ends meet through the most difficult circumstances. I have seen her going the extra mile to provide and care for her family. My mother suffered a stroke a very bad stroke about four years ago, which left her completely paralyzed on her left side. Immediately after her stroke, she had no function at all in her left side. So she could hardly sit up unless we propped her. And she was courageous in regaining her strength, in regaining her mobility, and not once adopting a defeatist attitude. She's mobile now with the assistance of a walker. I would like to believe that I get my courage, my tenacity, my never give up attitude and my positivity from my mother. Despite being limited to a walker, my mother is full of joy, always ready to laugh and always smiling. In general, I'm inspired by the community in which I grew up, by the women in that community, the women who were subjected to so much but they continued. They continued to do the best for their children. I was inspired by my teachers. I had mainly female teachers in my school, but I considered them as second and third mothers when I was growing up. I have a close circle of women friends who inspire me every day. Some of them are part of that statistic of single-headed households. And they inspire me by the roles they play in their family. They inspire me by their work in the community. Despite their circumstances, they are ready to give. They are ready to build. And at a broader level, there are so many South African women that we can look to as fighters, so many role models. I mean, Winnie Mandela, she also had that courageous, never give up spirit, despite whatever the apartheid government threw at her, they could never keep her down. I'm inspired by Grasa Michelle, her grace, her wisdom, her elegance. I'm inspired by Ella Gandhi, a peace activist. I'm inspired by her efforts for social justice. I'm inspired by Helen Zuzman. 
She served in parliament at a time when it was not popular to do so. She spoke up against apartheid when it was not popular to do so. I'm inspired by Navi Pillay, somebody I know very, very well, the first woman to open up a law practice in KwaZulu-Natal. She later became a judge and she became judge president of the International Criminal Tribunal. She then was the United Nations Commissioner for Human Rights. I'm inspired by Fatima Mir, prolific writer, political activist, and I worked for her for a short time while I was at university. So I encourage all women to find women in their community, women in their circle, women in, in, in our society at large who will inspire them to do more, to be more, to achieve more, and to raise children to be Leonas, to be Venuses, to raise children to, to reach their Kilimanjaro, whatever that might be. That is an amazing reflection on female role models, some who are directly in your life, some who are in the past, as some who are, are indirect. Justice Teron, we have um, unfortunately run out of time. I would love to be able to continue our conversation. But as we close off, could you share a few words of motivation that you'd like to pass on to women in the continent in celebration of Women's Month? Yes, yes, for sure. You know, they coined the song, Batinta Bafas, Batinta Mogodo. I sometimes say to women, put a stone or a small piece of rock next to your bedside. And at the times when you're feeling down, as we all do at times, when you're feeling that life is just, you, you want that courage to continue. Look at that rock and remember that you are a rock. You are a rock in your family. You are a rock for your children. You are a rock in your community. And when you need that courage to continue, remember those 20,000 women who walked and marched on union buildings. Can you imagine how difficult and how challenging it must have been for them to organize in that time? And we, yes, we don't have all the opportunities, but we have more opportunities. There is more that we can do. Have a vision. Have a vision for yourself. Have a vision for your children. Have a plan to implement that vision and be willing to work hard to accomplish it. And you definitely will reach your goal. Thank you for that fantastic message. And I love this analogy and the metaphor of having a rock with you. It just reminds you of your, your strength and your power. Yes. Thank you so yes. much for sharing your time and insights with us today. It's been such a pleasure. And if I can say one final word, and, and, and this I thought of after we summited Kilimanjaro, we were a group of four ordinary women, four working class women. We were not talented athletically or anything like that. We were ordinary women who managed to attain an extraordinary feat by summiting Kilimanjaro. So that's the secret. We're ordinary, but we work hard. Those achievements, those gains, those goals, it's ordinary people who achieve 
the extraordinary. And we're all ordinary, so we can all achieve the extraordinary. So, so true. Thank you for that motivation. It's been an absolute inspiration hosting you. Thank you very much. It's, it's been an honor and a privilege for me to be on the show. Thanks again. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Justice Leona Turon, who is a judge of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. 